A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of these families' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Cap Hatfield was certain about one thing— some women gossip too much for their own good. Maybe it was harmless most of the time. But when his family was under attack, he couldn't abide loose lips. Someone in the Hatfield clan was spilling secrets. Cap suspected the culprit was his sister-in-law, Nancy. After all, she was a McCoy, by blood. It was foolish to trust her. The question now was what to do about her. Bad behavior had to be punished. Cap thoughtfully stared at the wall. He saw the tail of a cow nailed to the wooden logs of his cabin. He had chopped it off just to see the animal jump, then hung it up to dry. Cap ripped the tail down and brandished it like a whip, swishing it through the air. He smiled as a plan began to form in his mind. Those gossiping McCoy women had earned a beating, and he would be the one to give it to them. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Beginning in 1865, the Hatfields of Logan County, West Virginia, and the McCoys of Pike County, Kentucky, were locked in a lethal feud that would entangle the families in a bloody cycle of violence over the subsequent 26 years. The trouble began with the death of 37-year-old Harmon McCoy, the former Union soldier was killed in January of 1865 by a Confederate-leaning militia group led by Devil Ants Hatfield 
and his uncle, Jim Vance. In 1878, 13 years after Harmon's murder, his older brother, Randolph McCoy, accused a Hatfield of stealing his hogs. At the trial to determine the ownership of the animals, a McCoy cousin named Bill Staten testified against family lines. The McCoys were so furious about this betrayal that two of Randolph's nephews shot and killed Bill Staten in 1880. That same year, 21-year-old Rosanna McCoy fell in love with 18-year-old John C. Hatfield. But after a brief affair that left Rosanna pregnant, John C. jilted Rosanna to marry her cousin, Nancy. These events pushed the McCoys to a breaking point. On election day, August 7th of 1882, three of Randolph McCoy's sons stabbed and shot Confederate war hero and Baptist deacon, Ellison Hatfield. After the brawl, a posse led by Devil Ants Hatfield grabbed the McCoy brothers, Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud, and dragged them to an old schoolhouse on the West Virginia side of the Tug Fork River. There, they waited to see whether Ellison Hatfield would survive his injuries. At three o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday, August 9, 1882, 40-year-old Ellison Hatfield succumbed to his wounds. Word quickly got back to the old schoolhouse. Sarah McCoy, the mother of the captive brothers, had been holding vigil outside. But when the news came in, the Hatfield mob ordered her to leave. Devil Ants gathered 20 of his men. He instructed them to lead the McCoy prisoners outside. At nightfall, they began their journey back into Kentucky. The posse was primed for murder, but one Hatfield remained reticent. Valentine Hatfield, nicknamed Wall, Devil Ants' oldest brother and a justice of the peace in West Virginia's Logan County. As Wall Hatfield's horse reached the edge of the Tug Fork River, he watched a group of men grab Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud McCoy and hustle them towards the riverbank. The rush of the river couldn't drown out the frantic pleas of the young McCoy boys. Wall felt doubt creep in as he stared at their tear-streaked faces. Wall looked around, but none of the other Hatfield men seemed to be affected. He couldn't help but think of the McCoy boy's father, Randolph, who had gone on to Pikeville to find a lawyer to defend his sons. Randolph had put his trust in the principles of law and order. Up until this moment, Wall had dedicated his life to those same values. Now, he felt ashamed at how easily he had let his anger sweep his principles away. Wall heard his brother, Devil Ants, order the posse to take the McCoy brothers across the river into Kentucky. The prisoners would soon be outside of Wall's jurisdiction and beyond his responsibility. But Wall felt more burdened than ever. Finally, he had to speak up. Wall told the posse to reconsider. He reminded them that the Bible prohibited murder. But Wall's brother never had much use for religion. Devil Ants had always been stubborn, even as a boy. When he had his mindset on something, trying to convince him otherwise only made him dig in harder. As Wall protested, Devil Ants just stared at him coldly, then ordered his men to keep going. Wall thought of other pleas, but he couldn't seem to voice them. It seemed pointless to stand up against the inflamed passions of his kin. He kept silent and let the men drag the McCoy prisoners away. 
With Wall gone, the rest of the men fell in line behind Devil Ants, following his instructions without question. Before I continue with the psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Rebecca Sachs, an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience at MIT, has conducted research on how a mob mentality can prompt individuals to ignore their own morals and commit acts they would never have considered on their own. In her study, Sachs measured the brain activity of people performing a competitive task both alone and in a group. When the participants of the study acted as a group, the areas of their brains responsible for self-reflection were less active than when they acted alone. They were therefore less capable of applying their usual standards of conduct. Wall Hatfield was able to overcome mob mentality, but the rest of his kin gave into it. After the group crossed the Tug Fork River, the posse found a ditch not far from the riverbank. A smattering of broadleaf pawpaw trees grew within this hollow, the Hatfield mob tied the McCoys to the pawpaw trunks. According to witnesses, Tolbert McCoy remained impassive. He said, I want the man who kills me to stand right before my eyes. I want to look him right in the eye. Ignoring Tolbert's request, the Hatfields tied him to the tree backwards so that he wouldn't be able to face his executioner. Farmer and Bud didn't make any final requests. They only sobbed. The firing squad included Devil Ants and his sons, 20-year-old Jauncey, 18-year-old Cap, and 15-year-old Bob. They were joined by several family members and friends, including a man named Ellison Mounts, known as Cottontop, due to his white blonde hair. Cottontop was the 24-year-old illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield, whose death the men were now avenging. Cottontop said in a later account that a Hatfield ally hung lanterns over the heads of the McCoy brothers so that the posse would know where to aim. Moments later, the firing squad unleashed a torrent of gunfire. The blast echoed through the mountains. Jim McCoy, the oldest of Randolph McCoy's sons, was still awake that night. His mother, Sarah, had convinced him to stay away from the trouble because she didn't want another one of her sons to risk his life by getting involved. Jim was restlessly sitting on the front porch of a family friend's house, waiting for any news to come in, when he heard the shots. He knew what those shots meant, but he hoped his intuition was wrong. He set out into the now silent woods. When he came to the pawpaw ditch, the Hatfield posse was gone, but the bodies of his three brothers remained. The next morning, Randolph McCoy returned home from Pikeville, having secured bail and legal representation for his sons, only to learn he was too late. The McCoys called on neighbors to help them retrieve the three bodies and bring them home. They were buried that day, August 11, 1882. 57-year-old Randolph McCoy was ready to put together his own lynch mob, but his wife Sarah convinced him not to retaliate. She couldn't bear the thought of more killing. Randolph relented, but the matter wasn't over. The same day his sons were buried, Randolph rode to the town of Pikeville, Kentucky to speak with the county prosecutors about filing indictments against his son's killers. A month after the funeral, a Kentucky grand jury 
brought charges against Devil Lance, his brother Wall, his sons Jauncey and Cap, and 16 other men for murder. Coming up, we'll talk about the Hatfields' attempts to evade the law while continuing to stoke the flames of the feud. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. On August 10th, 1882, a group of Hatfield men and allies killed three McCoy brothers, 28-year-old Tolbert, 19-year-old Farmer, and 18-year-old Bud, in retaliation for the stabbing and killing of Ellison Hatfield. A month later, Kentucky authorities issued indictments for 43-year-old Devil Ann's Hatfield and two of his adult sons. But apprehending the Hatfields proved to be difficult. The sheriff of Pikeville, Kentucky, claimed that he didn't have the authority to arrest men outside of his jurisdiction. When the court reconvened in February 1883, six months after the Pawpaw murders, the records showed that beside each indicted man's name, the sheriff wrote, not found in this county. To avoid capture, it seemed that the Hatfields would merely have to remain in their home state of West Virginia. The lack of legal repercussions immediately after the Pawpaw murders may have helped spur later episodes of aggression between the two families. Sociologist and professor of history, Roberta Seneschal, wrote that collective violence arises where law is lacking. She explained that when authorities are perceived as weak and ineffective, civilians are more likely to take the law into their own hands as a method of self-help. The Kentucky Sheriff's failure to act meant that the Hatfields weren't afraid of being arrested, but the lack of legal oversight made them feel vulnerable to vigilantism. It's not clear whether any of the McCoys were seeking retribution at that time, but the Hatfields seemed certain that payback was coming. Research conducted by German psychology and behavior experts Robert Boom, Hannes Rush, and Osgar Gerurk revealed that the perception of an existential threat intensifies a group's hatred of an opposing group. Moreover, this perceived threat to an in-group triggers a greater likelihood of preemptive violence towards the out-group. Over the next few years, the Hatfield stayed in West Virginia, hiding out in the woods whenever they felt threatened. Authorities continued to turn a blind eye to their activities, but the Hatfields grew increasingly paranoid. When one of their forest hideouts burned down, they suspected someone was leaking information about their whereabouts to the McCoys. They believed the most likely culprit to be Nancy McCoy Hatfield. She was the daughter of Harmon McCoy, the Union soldier whose murder had sparked the feud nearly 20 years earlier. Nancy McCoy had married Jauncey Hatfield in 1880 when she was 16 and he was 18. But Nancy did not remain enamored of Jauncey for long. She quickly grew tired of Jauncey's womanizing and drinking, and she made her feelings clear. Now that the McCoys had found success in locating their hideouts, Jauncey and his father, Devil Ants, 
worried that the embittered Nancy was passing Hatfield's secrets to her sister Mary, who then relayed the details to their uncle Randolph. So, in 1886, Devil Anse enlisted his 22-year-old son, Cap Hatfield, to send the McCoys a message. Cap Hatfield had become one of his father's fiercest lieutenants in the family war. According to witnesses, Cap Hatfield didn't have a quick temper like his brother, Jauncey, or his father, Devil Anse, but Cap's calm indifference only made him more unsettling. One of his cousins said that, quote, Cap wasn't mean, but if you troubled him, he'd shoot ya, and shoot ya mighty quick, too. He just didn't care to kill ya, that's all. Cap wanted to stop his sister-in-law, Nancy, from leaking information, but as brutal as Cap was, he was apparently not willing to mess with Nancy McCoy Hatfield. She was described as a hellcat, willing to kill any man who crossed her, in-law or not. So Cap steered clear of Nancy and targeted her sister Mary, who he believed to be the recipient of Nancy's leaks. One summer night, Cap and his hired hand Tom Wallace donned masks and led a group of a dozen men to the house of Mary McCoy Daniels and her husband, Bill Daniels. According to one account, Bill Daniels was away that night, leaving his wife, elderly mother, and children alone. Cap and Tom Wallace entered the home and ripped 35-year-old Mary out of bed. They dragged her to the fireplace and forced her to kneel in front of it. Cap had brought with him a cowtail, lopped from one of his livestock, and used it as a punishing lash. He whipped Mary across her back until she fainted. The men trudged out, leaving Mary unconscious. Later, she identified Tom Wallace as one of the attackers from the distinctive white streak in his hair. Mary and Nancy's brother, Jeff McCoy, soon heard about the attack. This fourth child of Harmon McCoy hastily grabbed his gun and went to the home of Tom Wallace. Tom escaped Jeff's clutches and ran to Cap Hatfield's cabin. As Tom hid inside, Jeff tried to scare him out by shooting up the place. It didn't work, but it angered Cap Hatfield. Unhappy to find his cabin, riddled with bullet holes. A short time later, Cap and Tom went out in search of Jeff McCoy. When Jeff realized they were looking for him, he led them on a chase through the woods. Jeff tried to swim across the Tug Fork River, but as he reached the other side and began to climb up the bank, Cap Hatfield and Tom Wallace spotted him and fatally shot him in the back. The following spring of 1887, Tom Wallace was discovered shot dead near his home in West Virginia. Most residents believed he was murdered by Jake and Lark McCoy, the second and third children of Harmon McCoy. The McCoy brothers claimed they had nothing to do with it, but they had been vocal about their grudge against Tom Wallace ever since the beating of their sister Mary and the death of their brother, Jeff. This back-and-forth vigilantism seemed like it might go on forever, in 1887, five years after the Pawpaw murders, 62-year-old Randolph McCoy still hoped that the law would intervene to end the violence. Although authorities had thus far been ineffective in bringing any Hatfields into custody, Randolph still had an important ally on his side, Perry Klein. 
Perry Klein was a friend of the McCoy family with his own grudges against the Hatfields. His sister, Patty Klein McCoy, was the widow of Harmon McCoy, which meant that Mary, Nancy, Jeff, Lark, and Jake were his nieces and nephews. He wasn't pleased about their repeated run-ins with Cap Hatfield. Not only that, Perry Klein was still nursing an even older resentment. Perry had once been the neighbor of Devil Ants Hatfield, until Devil Ants sued him for trespassing and took 5,000 acres of his land as a settlement. Perry Klein had moved to Pikeville in the early 1870s. By 1887, he was 38 years old and had become a lawyer and prominent Democrat among Kentucky's political circles. It was an election year, and a man named Simon Bolivar Buckner was a Democratic candidate running for governor. Perry Klein made Buckner an ally by promising to campaign for him in his part of the state. Klein delivered, and Buckner was inaugurated on August 30, 1887. Perry Klein was quick to call in a return favor. He asked the governor to finally act on the Hatfield indictments. Buckner agreed and issued a $500 bounty for each of the Hatfields' capture. On September 10th, he contacted West Virginia's governor, Willis Wilson, and sent a formal request for extradition of the men. Wilson was slow to act, so Buckner also appointed a friend of Klein's, a deputy sheriff known as Bad Frank Phillips, to bring the men in. 25-year-old Bad Frank Phillips was described as graceful-looking, with a smooth, hairless face and soft, expressive eyes. His delicate appearance led many to underestimate him. In truth, he was a ruthless, tenacious bulldog of a man. Over the next few months, Bad Frank led several raids into West Virginia in search of the indicted Hatfields. The participants of the pawpaw murder firing squad were forced into hiding. They couldn't stay in one place for more than a night or two out of fear of being caught. They lived like nomads, moving around from the home of one relative to another and even camping in caves and ditches. The Hatfields knew that this life was unsustainable Devil Ants even tried to bribe Perry Klein with $225 to end his pursuit. Perry Klein kept the money, but he didn't stop Bad Frank from continuing his efforts. On New Year's Eve of 1887, the Hatfields had been evading Bad Frank Phillips for three months and avoiding their indictments for five years. They seemed resigned to the fact that they might soon be arrested and charged. If they couldn't stop the raids, they could at least eliminate any witnesses who might eventually testify against them. That afternoon, Devil Ants, his sons Cap and Jauncey, his nephew Cottontop Mounts, and a handful of others met in the home of Jim Vance. They held a council to make sure all the men were in agreement. Together, they worked out a plan to murder 62-year-old Randolph McCoy and his family. Jim Vance seemed especially vehement that it was time to end the feud once and for all in a final tidal wave of violence. His great-nephew, Cap Hatfield, was similarly eager. But some members of the family were having second thoughts. As soon as the sky grew dark, the men were ready to ride off to the McCoy homestead. If any of them felt unsure about their mission, Jim Vance had taken care of that. He had whipped them into a bloodthirsty frenzy. He blamed the McCoys 
for all the troubles they'd had since Frank Phillips had started hunting them down. But Devil Ants felt strange. To his own surprise, he felt reluctant to go through with their plan. He wasn't a coward. After everything he'd done, nobody could accuse him of that. But he was tired. Every time he closed his eyes to go to sleep, he wondered if he'd wake up to find the barrel of a gun pointed at his face. This was all happening because he killed those McCoy boys in a fit of rage. Now Uncle Jim wanted to finish off the rest of the McCoy kin, but what good would it do? If anything, it would only bring more indictments on their heads. The men were ready to go, loaded with guns. Feeling numb, Devil Lance started to walk towards his horse, but then he stopped. He told the men that he was feeling ill. If they wanted to go ahead, they could. He would even give them his best gun, but they would have to go on without him. Jim Vance led a group of nine men across the Tug Fork River into Kentucky. The temperature was freezing. Earlier that day, there had been a downpour of sleet, but the skies were now clear, leaving the group with few obstacles as they rode. The group snuck up a hill leading to Randolph and Sarah McCoy's modest cabin. As they crept through the darkness, they crashed into a fence, sending the post clattering down the hill. The group hastily retreated, worried that the noise had warned the McCoys of their approach. After a quick discussion, they decided to call off the attack that night. But Jim Vance insisted that they all return the following night, January 1st, 1888, in order to finish the job. Coming up, we'll talk about the New Year's Day massacre and the aftermath. Now, the conclusion to our story. After 20 years of bloodshed between the Hatfield and McCoy families, a group of Hatfield men decided to settle the feud once and for all. Led by 61-year-old Jim Vance, the troop headed for the McCoy family farm on the night of January 1st, 1888, on a mission to kill the whole family. Around 10.30 p.m., the men lined up in front of the farmhouse. Inside, the large family slept. Randolph McCoy and his wife Sarah, as well as four of their children who still lived at home, 25-year-old Calvin and his sisters, 29-year-old Alifair, 17-year-old Adelaide, and 14-year-old Fanny. In addition, there were two small grandchildren, Mel and Cora. They were the son and daughter of Tolbert McCoy, left fatherless after the pawpaw murders. As the Hatfield mob moved forward, a dog began to bark. The McCoy family woke up in alarm. Randolph and Calvin grabbed their guns and began to fire at the doors. John C. Hatfield took a bullet in his shoulder, and Cottontop Mounts was shot in the arm, but this didn't stop the Hatfields from returning fire. Jim Vance took a match to a bag of cotton leaning against the house, and the cabin began to burn. Alifair dashed outside to grab a bucket of water from the well to put out the fire. As soon as she left the house, Cap Hatfield and Cottontop Mounts began to shoot. Alifair was struck in the chest. Her mother, Sarah, ignored the bullets flying in all directions and raced out of the house to Alifair's side. Jim Vance spotted her and ordered her back inside. When she ignored him, he struck her with his gun barrel, 
knocking her down and breaking two of her ribs. But Sarah kept moving forward, now on her hands and knees, crawling to Alifair. Before she could reach her daughter, John C. Hatfield leapt forward and bashed her skull with his pistol. She finally collapsed, unconscious. Overwhelmed by smoke, Randolph grabbed his grandson, Mel, and ran to a neighbor's farm. Calvin tried to follow, but was fatally shot in the head. His sisters, Adelaide and Fanny, managed to escape the burning house with Cora. At that point, the Hatfields began to retreat. Smelling the smoke, neighbors arrived to help. They carried the unconscious Sarah McCoy to the home of her oldest son, Jim, but Alifair was beyond helping. She died on the ground where she had fallen. The McCoys buried their children, Alifair and Calvin, the following day. Afterwards, Randolph rode back to Pikeville to again press Perry Klein for help. Klein in turn advised Bad Frank Phillips to double his efforts. A few days later, Bad Frank planned another raid into West Virginia. He took with him a 23-man posse, including several McCoy family members. The group discovered a trail of blood on the ground near Randolph McCoy's burnt-out cabin. Bad Frank had a hunch that the blood would lead to an injured Hatfield, so they followed the trail. Soon, they came across Jim Vance and Cap Hatfield. Jim and Cap dove behind some rocks as the posse thundered toward them. According to family stories, Jim Vance felt sick that day from eating too much raccoon meat. He told Cap that he had no plans to run. He would stay and fight, ordering Cap to go find reinforcements. As he fled, Jim tried to hold the men off, but he was shot in the arm. While Jim lay bleeding on the ground, Bad Frank strode over and shot him in the head. When Cap reached his father's camp and told the men what had happened, they rallied a group to fight the Kentucky Posse. But the two groups never met that day. After killing Jim Vance, Bad Frank and the Kentucky Posse went on to the home of Valentine Wall Hatfield and placed him under arrest. They escorted Wall and five other Hatfield prisoners back to the jail in Pikeville, Kentucky. Bad Frank planned another raid for January 18, 1888. He brought 33 men with him, this time, the remaining Hatfields were warned of his arrival, and they had prepared themselves for a confrontation. Devil Lance had refused to participate in the New Year's attack, but he felt compelled to defend his family in the wake of Jim Vance's death. He called on cousins, neighbors, and even two West Virginian lawmen to help. The area's constable, John Thompson, and special deputy, Bill Dempsey, were evidently not pleased with the way these Kentuckians were invading their territory. They felt bound to protect their own citizens, even those wanted for murder. The two groups clashed at Grapevine Creek, about a mile east of the Tug Fork River, near the home of Cap Hatfield. The Hatfield spotted Jim McCoy first. He was carrying the gun his brother Calvin had used the night of the New Year's massacre. Jim managed to hit Special Deputy Bill Dempsey with his first shot. The Hatfield scuttled for cover as more members of the Kentucky Posse appeared. The Hatfields returned fire. The Kentucky Posse climbed down off their horses and dove behind a nearby stone wall. 
From those positions, the two groups fired on each other for over two hours. It became clear to the Hatfields that they were outnumbered, and they began to retreat. Bill Dempsey, injured by Jim McCoy's shot, but still alive, tried to crawl away. Bad Frank Phillips coldly placed the barrel of his gun against Dempsey's neck and blew his head off. None of the Hatfields were captured that day, but they were stunned by the battle and by the casual cruelty of Frank Phillips. They were beginning to understand that Phillips was willing to go to any lengths to hunt them down. After the Battle of Grapevine Creek, Devil Ants sent a letter to the Winchester Company in Massachusetts, placing an order for 10,000 rounds of ammunition and 25 new Winchester repeating rifles, which could be fired many times without reloading. These guns were an upgrade from the one-shot rifles and muzzle-loading guns many of the Hatfields had been carrying. The shipment would arrive the following October. If Devil Ants couldn't beat the Kentuckians in numbers, he could at least have superior firepower. The Battle of Grapevine Creek didn't just alarm the Hatfields. For many residents of Tug Fork, it invoked memories of the Civil War. The drama of the event caught the attention of journalists who began to sink their teeth into the story. Many newspapers took sides in the feud by embellishing the indecency of one side or the other. One report claimed, without evidence, that Bad Frank Phillips not only shot Bill Dempsey, but also picked his pockets after he died. Another reporter for the Pittsburgh Times extolled the doggedness of Frank Phillips and expressed sympathy for the McCoy family, while labeling the Hatfields as a cowardly gang banded together for the purpose of murder. The hostility spread to the local and state politicians. West Virginia's Governor Wilson objected to the arrest of Wall Hatfield and the others taken into custody. He claimed they had been taken without any legal process and unlawfully transferred across state lines. He demanded the prisoners be released. Kentucky's Governor Buckner refused. By his reckoning, he wasn't under any obligation to release the men. He felt that once the prisoners were in his state's custody, Kentucky had the right to try them for any crimes they had committed within their jurisdiction. The matter went before a court in Louisville, which determined that it did not have jurisdiction over a controversy between two states. According to the U.S. Constitution, only the U.S. Supreme Court had the power to decide such a dispute. The Supreme Court heard the case on April 23, 1888. The court agreed with Kentucky that however the men had been brought into the state, even if the manner of their capture was illegal— they could still be legally tried once they were in custody. Kentucky was free to prosecute the men already behind bars. The ruling of the Supreme Court rattled the Hatfields. It also obliterated any expectation that the justice system would treat them fairly. To them, the actions of Bad Frank Phillips amounted to kidnapping. The work of Janice Nadler a research professor of law and psychology showed that when people feel that they are treated fairly by the justice system, they are less likely to reoffend in the future. Conversely, when people view the law as unjust, they are more likely to act out with criminal behavior. If the Hatfields were comfortable evading the law before, the Supreme Court decision only made them more defiant. In the summer of 1888, Rumors spread throughout the Tug Fork Valley 
that dozens of bounty hunters were combing the mountains in search of Hatfields. Cottontop Mounts was caught by two detectives and taken into custody. There, he joined Wall Hatfield, along with about a dozen other men indicted for feud-related crimes. The trial for the 1882 Pawpaw murders began in August of 1889. In an odd change of heart, Perry Klein decided to take up the legal defense of Wall Hatfield. Some say this was because Wall offered him more money, which overruled Klein's friendship with the McCoys. Others say Perry was still loyal to the McCoys and his defense of Wall was a sham. Perhaps the latter theory was correct. Wall Hatfield was found guilty in his trial and given a life sentence. Wall was shocked by the decision he was one of the few Hatfields that had tried to temper some of the flames of the feud and was sure he would be acquitted. He wasn't the only one bewildered by his trial's outcome. Cottontop Mounts had participated in both the Pawpaw murders and the New Year's raid, but he hadn't planned them. He had just gone along with what Hatfield leaders had told him to do. He was described as easily influenced. Some historians have indicated that he may have had an intellectual handicap. While in custody, Cottontop confessed to the New Year's Raid murder of 29-year-old Alifair McCoy. Some reporters speculated that he was bribed into doing so. One article suggested that Cap Hatfield promised Cottontop $500, a rifle, and a new saddle if he would take the fall for the murder. The Hatfields seemed to hope that by making Cottontop a scapegoat, the rest of them would get off lightly. If Cottontop was promised a small fortune in exchange for pleading guilty, he would never get to enjoy it. Following the trial of Alifair's murder, he was sentenced to be hanged. His execution was scheduled for February 18, 1890. Cottontop waited on the edge of his cot he was told that his mother would soon be arriving to visit him. He wanted to see her one last time, to hear her promise that she would not be present for the hanging. No mother should have to see that. As he waited, he couldn't stop a flicker of hope from consuming his thoughts. There was still time for a rescue. Maybe his family would storm the jail and break him out. There were rumors that Cap Hatfield might be planning such a scheme. Thinking about Cap made Cottontop feel angry. He was the real culprit. They were both guilty of shooting up the McCoy's farmhouse, but it was Cap's bullet that had struck the McCoy girl, Alifair. Cottontop felt sure of it. Cottontop could hear a crowd beginning to form outside, spectators for the hanging, but nobody came to break down the jail doors and set him free. Cottontop's hope curdled into despair. He had wasted so much of the last few years hating the McCoys. But he didn't feel any hate now. They weren't responsible for him being here. It was his own kin, the Hatfields, who had pushed him to violence. Cottontop had unleashed his worst impulses for the sake of his family. Now, his family had abandoned him. Witnesses on February 18th said that just before the executioners covered his face with a black hood, Cottontop cried out, The Hatfields made me do it. An estimated 7,000 people came to see the hanging, 
including Randolph McCoy. Afterwards, tensions seemed to settle. Cottontop wasn't the only guilty party, but many Tug Fork residents just seemed happy that someone, anyone, had paid for the havoc the feud caused. The violence to date had cost the Hatfield seven lives and the McCoys ten. Now, the families were no longer out for blood. Most of the remaining McCoys moved away from Tug Fork, settling permanently in Pikeville, Kentucky. Sarah and Randolph were too heartbroken to think of vengeance. They had lost their sons, Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud, in the pawpaw murders of 1882. Their son Calvin and their daughter Alifair died in the New Year's Massacre of 1888. Rosanna McCoy had been cast out by her family in 1880 after her affair with John C. Hatfield, but she had restored ties after the New Year's Massacre to take care of her injured mother. Even after reuniting with her family, Rosanna suffered from severe depression. In the spring of 1889, her family reported that she seemed to be wasting away. One night, 29-year-old Rosanna went to bed and never woke up. Her close friend and sister-in-law, Martha McCoy, would later say she died of a broken heart. Rosanna's younger brother, Bill, had suffered from unbearable guilt ever since the pawpaw murders. Bill, along with his brothers Farmer and Tolbert, had taken part in the stabbing of Ellison Hatfield. But when the Hatfield mob came to settle the score, they had taken Bud McCoy instead of Bill. Bill carried the responsibility of his brother's death on his conscience for years. In October of 1889, at the age of 23, he fell ill and died. Randolph McCoy remained bitter for the rest of his life, but he felt it best that the feud come to an end before it could claim any more lives. The Hatfields suffered fewer losses, but came to the same conclusion. On February 24, 1891, 27-year-old Cap Hatfield sent a letter to the editor, published in the Wayne County News. In this letter, Cap wrote, The war spirit in me has abated, and I sincerely rejoice at the prospect of peace. I have devoted my life to arms. We have undergone a fearful loss of noble lives and valuable property in the struggle. Now, I propose to rest in a spirit of peace." Cap's editorial didn't mention the fact that he was still wanted for murder in Kentucky. He also oversold his purported spirit of peace. In 1896, Cap was arrested after a shootout, unrelated to the McCoys and convicted of manslaughter. The crime carried only a one-year sentence, which Cap served in a small county jail in Williamson, West Virginia. He was worried that if he stayed in custody, he might be extradited to Kentucky. So three months into his sentence, Cap escaped from the jail using a drill that his wife managed to sneak in. By most accounts, he fled to Oklahoma. His spirit did eventually settle. In his time away, he attended law school. After a decade, Cap returned to West Virginia to start a legal practice. Cap's older brother, Jauncey, also carved out a new life for himself after the feud. His Hellcat wife, Nancy McCoy Hatfield, divorced him. She, in fact, left him for Bad Frank Phillips. But Jauncey remarried and started a logging business. His role in the feud seemed to be in the distant past. However, 
a U.S. Marshal named Dan Cunningham, was still interested in collecting the $500 rewards for the capture of any indicted Hatfields. In June of 1899, Cunningham nabbed Johnsey in the town of Gilbert, West Virginia, and escorted him to Kentucky for trial. Johnsey was found guilty, and he received a life sentence. But six years into this sentence, another inmate attacked the warden of the prison. Johnsey fought the other inmate off, and as a reward, he was granted parole. Unlike his sons, Devil Ants never saw the inside of a jail. He kept up his quiet life in the mountains. In 1911, 72-year-old Devil Ants sent a message to Randolph McCoy's oldest son, Jim. Devil Ants offered Jim a sum of $10,000 and asked whether the indictment against him could be withdrawn. Jim McCoy refused the offer, but sent back a message telling Devil Ants that he had let go of all resentments and he did not consider the Hatfields to be a target any longer. Even as the Hatfield and McCoy families moved on from the feud, the story has become immortalized as an American legend. It may be that people see their own grudges and passions echoed in the conflict. Psychologists Michael McCullough, Robert Kurzban, and Benjamin Tabak have suggested that revenge is a universal and necessary human adaptation. But their work also states that the capacity for forgiveness is just as inherent to the human experience. The final, peaceful outcome of the Hatfield and McCoy feud seemed to prove their point. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.